everyone. Welcome back to Podside Picnic. I'm here as always, well, often at least, with the James Cole to my Jeffrey Goins, Pete. And we're also here with the Doctrine Catherine Rayleigh to this whole enterprise, Owen <laughs> Higgins. Welcome, Owen. Thank you guys for having me. Hey, man. Um, and diehards will have already recognized that uh, those character references I was making are to the Terry Gilliam film, 12 Monkeys, which I watched last night. Uh, Owen suggested it, and it is it's from 1995. It's a, pl- a plague outbreak slash time travel slash eco something film. It is a wild trip, as you might expect from Gilliam. And um, yeah, I mean, I think that my that I just want to kick this off by asking Owen, why did you you know, what, what makes this movie so important to you? Why'd you, why'd you want to do it on here? Yeah. Um, well, it, it's, it's one of, if not my favorite movies of all time. Um, I first watched it, I think like shortly after it came out on video with a bunch of friends and it made a huge impression on me at the time. Um, I just think that the themes of kind of this kind of apocalyptic plague outbreak, uh, and how humans would survive, and then using time travel to try and fix it, uh, and then all of like the different inner themes within those ideas have always appealed to me. Um, you know, from when I was a teenage stoner watching this to to now, uh, and the performances in the movie. I mean, I just think the acting is so good. It, it just, you know, I watched it when when I first brought this up with you and Pete a couple months ago, uh, I just watched it for the first time in years and I was just like blown away again by how it's just such a, uh, I think maybe the right word is like, it's such a tightly done movie. Like I, I can't think of, there's maybe one or two things in it that I think that could be lost and the, the movie wouldn't suffer for. But otherwise I think that the thing is pretty much like perfectly put together and it's just such an interesting story and interesting idea. And also, and we can get into this later, but I, I just, I really like the way that it's so open. It's somewhat ambiguous and open to interpretation. And I like kind of like thinking about the different ways to think about what it means and what the, what the ending means and what the themes are and, and, and how it all kind of works out together. So, um, I, I didn't even like pre-clear this with you guys as a question, but I'm, I'm worked up about it. Have you, have either of you seen La Jetée? The, the French movie this is based on? I have yes. not seen it. Okay. So. I think I did. It, it's, based on is weak because it's, it's so much, the major plot points are identical. And I like 12 Monkeys more simply because it's film length and a lot more robust and the acting is better, blah, 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 blah. But the fact that the at the end of 12 Monkeys, this said inspired by La Jetée is kind of upsetting considering it's it's a remake of the film. Yeah, I remember I, I, I think that I did watch it with uh, some friends after we watched 12 Monkeys, but mm-hmm. This would have been like 20 something years ago. And I don't remember either. Well, first of all, I don't remember if that happened or if I'm just kind of like interpreting, like hearing about the movie and then talking about it 
with seeing it. Mm-hmm. And if I did see it, I don't really remember anything about it. I remember it was black and white. I know that. Yeah. And it was basically a slideshow. I mean, of it's it's definitely one of those movies that people will come up to at a party and start talking about where you start tuning them out. It's that film. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's French, you know. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I mean, at some point, I'm going to make Pete... Um, and maybe some guests watch some great, uh, you know, non-English language sci-fi, like especially Solaris. But I do think that uh, I haven't seen La Jete. I will say that La Jete, one thing I know for certain about that movie, it doesn't have Bruce Willis. It doesn't have Madeline Stowe. And it doesn't have Brad Pitt in what is a dark horse for maybe his best performance. He was nominated <laughs> well, for an Oscar for it. Yeah. And he was not an A-list actor when cast for this. He was some basically a nobody. Yeah, when when he was cast for this, like he was kind of on the up and up, but he hadn't I can't remember what movie or movies happened in between him filming this and its release that had like just exploded his profile oh, when seven. this came out. But I I I as as far as I remember, like when he did this movie, he he was coming off of the success of like one or two things, but he hadn't really turned into Brad Pitt yet. And and also, you know, Bruce Willis, when when this came out, had, you know, been mostly known for comedy in the 80s and then had like done Die Hard in a couple of action movies and was starting to be seen that way. And I remember when when this movie like this was a performance that nobody had seen coming from him either. Like it was just completely uh, I, I remember it was like critically acclaimed acting by especially him and uh, Pitt. Because people didn't really think of them as the kind of actors that could pull these performances off. So, Owen, when you think about what what uh, uh, what Bruce Willis did here as an actor, is there anything that really jumps out at you as special? Because like, there's a couple of scenes I'm going to remember to my grave, and I'm just wondering if it's that sort of film to you, too. Yeah. Um, Putting I mean, you on the spot, like, you know. <laughs> it's all, well, it's almost like the entire performance is just so good. Uh, yeah. I think I think to me, you know, the scene that always sticks out for Bruce Willis in this movie is when uh, and minor spoilers here, but like after he leaves Gowen's father's house and he he lets Madeline Stowe out of the trunk of the car and she's hitting him and he basically, you know, because she's a psychologist I guess we can kind of go into the plot later, but he, you know, he thinks at this point that he has lost his mind and that, that the time travel and stuff does not exist and that it's all in his head. And he just kind of regresses into this child and he's jumping around into being a child and he's kind of jumping around in this stream and, uh, you know, saying like all of these you know, just kind of like kind of playful, childish noises and, and, and talking about how much he loves this world and stuff and the splash, the splash. And then all of a sudden it stops and he's gone. And I think that in order to sell that moment, which is basically him like disappearing into time and, and, and for Madeline Stowe, who, and who, who does a great job of also selling Dr. Rayleigh's response to this. But I think without, Willis's um, ability to kind of lose himself in that moment on screen. I don't think that the that that moment 
And probably the movie in general doesn't have the same impact without him kind of going all in to this character who, you know, has has this kind of like childlike awe as as well as being like extremely violent and extremely dangerous. But well, he fights like a child. Like I've, I, I think, I think you're, you're dead on. Like the, this character is somebody who never ultimately became an adult. And that's, you know, that, that's the acting style. And I, it's, it's, it's really special. I agree. Yeah. I, I was struck. I mean, I didn't know what to expect going into this. I knew it was Gilliam. Um, I, you know, I, I was not, I was pleasantly surprised by what I saw from both Willis and Pitt. Um, both of whom show off side of their acting. They don't get to show off. Uh, Pitt gets to be this sort of like impish, puckish, you know, manically, you know, manic high energy, somewhat, you sort of alternately deluded and brilliant, uh, rich scion of this scientist um, who meets James Cole. When James Cole has been sent back in time, James Cole being Bruce Willis, has been sent back in time by this, uh, you know, dystopian post-apocalyptic state that exists underground where he's a prisoner and, you know, he meets Brad Pitt in uh, in a mental institution um, and Brad Pitt's like jumping around, bouncing off the walls, basically literally. And I don't know, there's just, it's like, I mean, one thing I will say is this came out in 1995 as a major studio American movie. It actually did quite well commercially. And for so many reasons, it's impossible to imagine this being made now. I mean, just impossible in the American studio system. And that is a real shame because, like, it worked. What they're doing worked with major names, and they made money. Yeah, I, I remember we talked about this a lot last time I was on, you know, we, when we were talking about, like, kind of like Netflix and how, what was the movie that we did when I was on? Pandorum. Pandorum, Pandorum. yeah. And and I think that you're right. I mean, it is it is hard to... I mean, the thing is that it's not hard to imagine a director like Gilliam today wanting to do this movie. It's not hard to imagine superstars uh, like whoever today's Brad Pitt and Bruce Willis would be doing, wanting to do, or Madeline Stowe, for that matter, wanting to do this movie, you know? Mm-hmm. But it is impossible to imagine a studio greenlighting it, definitely. And, yeah, I mean... It, it, it and and also like it's it, and it's even more hard like imagining a movie like this coming out and then not immediately like being like well this is going to have like three sequels and an expanded universe and you know instead of just being like this is a really good self-contained movie and also I mean the the, the structure of the narrative of this movie too also means that you can't have a sequel it is a it, it's a closed loop yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it does It does really interesting things with time. I wanna, I'm in a class on uh, the use of time in storytelling right now, and I, I want to recommend this to our professor, actually, because it is so, like, what it does requires a lot of tracking. When you're kind of drunk after watching a basketball game, watching it, it can get a little bit trippy. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, yeah, I mean, I guess um, I actually, you know, I'm realizing we're, we're over 10 minutes in here, but I am... Um, I've sort of outlined a little bit what this movie is about, but it, it's kind of about a lot of different things. And I actually want to, I want to ask Owen here. I mean, how would you describe this movie to someone who hasn't seen it? Cause there is, there is a lot going on here. Well, I, I want to interject for a second. I apologize, Connor. I realized there's something else we didn't do at the top of the hour, which is say what Owen does. Oh yeah. Well, we're going to let Owen, uh, you're right. I forgot to do that. You know, 
Uh, I wasn't blaming you. It's my bad too. I was just saying that like Owen is awesome and we should probably bring it up. Yeah, we're gonna let him. We're gonna let him plug his work at the end, as always. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was a, that was an oversight on my part. So, Owen, first of all, my apologies. Second of no all, worries, I'm, no worries. I, I'm really curious to hear you kind of summarize this in a way that you know, just I mean, tell us what it's about, but also like you know, in a way that. Uh, makes it legible to someone who hasn't seen it. Cause I think it, there is a lot, there is a lot going on in a lot of different ways to explain it, you know? Sure. Yeah. And, and, and as I said, you know, it's one of, if not my favorite movies, so I'm very happy to do that. Um, so the, the basic plot structure is that it, the movie's set at some kind of undetermined time in the future, but probably around like 2015 or 2014, considering this movie came out in 95 and in 1995, a, viral outbreak pandemic sweeps the world uh killing i think like 99.99 percent of the world's population uh and the surface you you can't go up to the surface without protective gear the whole place like a it's like a nuclear winter up there the 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 few glimpses that you do get to see of it and everybody lives underground and this group of scientists send bruce willis's character james cole back in time uh, to try to, or he, sorry, back up. He is one of many uh, people from the future who are sent back in time to try to stop uh, however this pandemic and this disease spread around the world. And they have a few, uh, you know, hints and clues. There are a couple of like, uh, there's a very interesting kind of through line about this answering machine that has a a message on it that they've found that talks about the army of the 12 monkeys which is what which is who uh you know unleashed this plague upon the world and so bruce willis goes back in time and ends up uh put into a mental institution where he meets brad pitt's character jeffrey goines um and he also meets madeline stowe's dr Catherine Raley. And uh, he then kind of he goes back and forth in time a couple times because he he'll get brought back and sent there. Uh, and his connection with Goins and really forms kind of I guess like the the backbone of the story. And also as as it kind of unfolds, you start to find out oh okay all of these people are involved with this. That's who's involved with the twelve monkeys. That's why this plague. Uh, happened, and while the actual reason for the plague is not what they think it is, it is still somewhat connected to this main story. This is a very interesting subplot, which turns out to be, you know, what what the actual um, the the actual pivotal point of the story about how the plague is released. But that's that's generally the story. And and but then there are other things. Just like so. One thing that Bruce Willis's character really remembers is like right before the outbreak, he remembers seeing somebody die. He remembers seeing this guy, you know, with long hair and a mustache and sunglasses die, uh, being shot to death in an airport by security forces. And that kind of, with this like weird kind of beeping noise, is like this constant refrain to the movie. Like he's always remembering this happening. And, um, I don't know. I mean, how, how, how many spoilers should I go into? I, here? Think, you know, I think that's probably enough. I mean, you, you nailed it. There's a lot of, there's a sort of a straightforward plot 
to an extent about time travel back from this 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 I mean this dystopian state that lives underground it's very Terry Gilliam like human bodies are sort of weak and vulnerable against all of this sort of nefarious kind of cartoonish but nefarious machinery and there's this you know very uh both again both Orwellian but also cartoonish like panel of like scientists leading this world and, and a lot of people are living in cages like a chicken coop and like it's yeah, and then, you know, you go back in time to try to remedy whatever happened, and they have this belief, like you said, that uh, the Army of the Twelve Monkeys was this sort of, like, pivotal force that that changed everything. And, you know, I, I don't want to give too much away, but I think that um, it's kind of a bridge for me to make my point that I think this is one of the best sort of screen depictions of, like, wacky, uh, zealous, but ultimately pointless, like, 90s lifestyle anarchism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I- <laughs> yeah, it's a there's, good point. <laughs> there's a point about the time travel I'd like to make here, which is um, we were talking about the 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 people from the future going back and making changes, but that's not. I don't really feel like that's what they're trying to do. I think the time travel that we have here is uh, is Greek play time travel, where everybody's fated to do everything and everything is predetermined what they're trying to do is get information so that that so that things can change going forward well i i see that's that's the interesting thing though and i think this kind of comes in come at me awesome (laughs) this is this is part of the conversation i think that that we were having offline before this kind of about the different the ambiguity and the different interpretations right because Mm -hmm. It does seem like it's a closed loop and it does seem like everything that people are doing who are sent back in time is just continuing the the cycle that they're already in. And and there is somewhat like there's like they're fated to do these things because these things have already happened before they were sent back in time. And they were sent back in time to figure out why these things happen. But they themselves are some of the reasons for these things happening. Right. So that kind of brings up and, and I'm not going to I'm not going to spoil the ending at all but what i will say is if you have seen this movie you can interpret the last scene which gilliam was forced to put in there and he didn't want to put in there but you can interpret the very last scene in a number of different ways you can interpret it as a break from that from that kind of predetermined um eventuality or you can interpret it as something that already happened and was always going to happen, which is the way that I interpret it, because I much prefer that bleak view of of, of the ending <laughs> of, of, of the movie, because I think it's much more interesting. And I think it 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 it, uh, it tells a lot. But I think that, you know, if, if we're looking at how the the internal world and the internal logic of time travel within this kind of closed loop within the movie works, then I think that it is, it, it's really interesting that, that they are doing things that they are fated to do. And yet while you're watching it, even, even as like, I mean, Gilliam does such a great job with this, just like yeah. thing after thing after thing that, that Cole does turns out, and, and you start to be able to see it turns out to just be nothing. He, he's changing nothing. He's, he's just fulfilling what has already happened. And even though, but this is what I think Gillian does so, so brilliantly is that even though you're watching this happen, even though you're understanding this happen, 
you are still completely invested. You're completely, you're, you're almost like tensely awaiting like what's going to happen. You think that there's still a possibility that he can, um, that, that there's a possibility that he can probably, you know, you know, change things. And I think that that is like a, a very difficult, uh, tr- trick to pull off, especially in fiction. And, and it, it reminds me of, and this is something that I remember my dad saying about The Day of the Jackal, which is a novel by Frederick Forsyth. It's a spy novel, and it's about an assassin called the Jackal who attempts to assassinate uh, Charles de Gaulle, president of France, back in, I think it's like the 60s or the 70s. And what my dad always said about this, this book, um, before and after I read it, was that the reason that it's so good is that even though you know you know that de Gaulle lived. You know he didn't get assassinated. <laughs> so you know that this book is like is either going to tell you something that you know is not true, or it's going to be true and like somehow the assassination plot is foiled. But it does not matter. It doesn't matter because the entire time that you're reading it, you you you're so tense. You're just waiting for this thing to happen. And I just think that that's it, it's it's like the mark of a really good storyteller if you're able to take a predetermined outcome like that and still have the viewer or the uh, reader or the consumer like completely invested in this to the point that they really 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 want what they know cannot possibly happen to happen or their or, or what they fear will happen not to happen and that somehow the good guys will win even though maybe that's not going to happen okay i want to do the quote guys can i do the quote please uh, <laughs> yes do the quote pete all right so there's a scene where uh where uh, uh, Cole and his psychiatrist um, are watching Vertigo, which is a whole other thing we could talk about if we want to. But anyway, he says something that I really feel like is the pin that ties the movie together, particularly the time travel moments. He goes, it's just like what's happening with us. The movie never changes. It can't change. But every time you see it, it seems different. Because you're different. And I think I think Owen is dead on in what he's describing here. And what makes this movie feel like it has uh, anything behind, beyond like the, the hand of fate dragging things forward is that your camera is in different places. It's like watching Memento. You know, the nonlinear storyline is broken up in a way to make it feel like there's a choice and there's not is my interpretation. Yeah, I think that's, I, I broadly agree. I, I haven't thought about this as deeply as you guys have. I spent most of my time just being charmed by, you know, these three main actors, but that sounds right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what did, Connor, I'm really interested because, you know, as, I mean, I've, I've obviously watched this multiple times. I, I get the impression that Pete, you've watched it definitely more than once. Yeah. Uh, but Connor, what what did you think of, I know that you said that you're not crazy about Gilliam's aesthetic, but um, what did you think about the world building that he did both like kind of in the future and in the present? And, and, and what was it about? I mean, I, I guess it, it's just really interesting to me, like somebody who had never seen it before to kind of like how, how to interpret all of this, you know, different stuff that I've been thinking about for years. What did you think about the aesthetic of, of the movie and what, what did you think about kind of 
you know, what we're talking about with this kind of closed loop idea and the time travel. I mean, was it difficult? Sorry, I'm asking like a bunch of different questions here, but was it, was it difficult for you to follow the um, the kind of back and forth time travel, like you know, the like the World War One moment and, and and whatnot, or did you feel that it was done well enough that, that that you kind of like understood what was going on while you were watching it? Yeah, I didn't think that it was necessarily. So, I mean, it's not as easy to follow as like the most cookie cutter of plots, but I didn't feel myself too disoriented. I do think that um, what I latched onto in this movie was I tend to, as Pete knows, locate things in like their very precise moment of their creation and try to think of them in those terms. And as you said, this is 1995. It's pr- sort of present day. It has a sort of present day strand. It's like 96, 97. Um, and as I said to you, like, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about like, on the one hand, the lifestyle anarchist eco-terrorists led by Brad Pitt, who eco-terrorist is a strong term. Like they have this very whimsical, uh, definitely ecologically driven agenda, but they're basically a bunch of dirtbags living in like, you know, some boarded up storefront or whatever. And they, they do wreak some havoc, but it ends up being ultimately kind of a joke and the Brad Pitt character is almost more of a Shakespearean fool than a pivotal, um, you know, sort of linchpin of the drama, which I think is really interesting. And and I, I appreciated that. I thought it was very, as I said, it was a very like mid nineties view of radicalism that probably as much as it diminishes, diminished the sort of radicalism in general, it also um, accurately reflected, I think a lot of currents of sort of counterculture and broadly left politics in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that I latched onto as far as the aesthetic of like the world that James Cole is coming from. I just sort of get, there's a certain kind of dystopianism that I find tiring and like Gilliam's like the way that he combines this sort of like nefarious disdain for the human body with this sort of like mechanistic focus on, you know, the scientific and the medicinal, um, I don't know something about it, I just get like I just get annoyed by it. I got annoyed. I got annoyed by that sort of futuristic world. Like it is menacing, but it's also like menacing to what end? Like why is everyone, you know, why does everyone need to be incarcerated by like this elite panel of scientists in this futuristic world? Uh, why sort of why this and why that? Um, and, and I get again. You know, it's like there's there's a there's a point he wants to make about like dehumanization and diminishment and humiliation and like I get it. It's never that kind of thing. Never necessarily, never really interests me per se. Um, but like again, I sort of fastened onto the present day arc of it. I was I was thinking about like the moves that it makes that almost that are almost owe a debt to the prior few decades of filmmaking, where like you know it 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 like the compulsion up until very recently, even for fairly highbrow films, to like that that like American cities must be shown to be like shitholes you would never want to live in which is very present in this movie. Like I find that like the relationship of a film to urban space, really interesting. And the way that this sort of like, it's priming us for this world to fall apart by making a series of moves that I think are fairly reactionary where it's like the radicals are sort of useless and incoherent and the cities are, are already falling into decay, uh, you know, sort of beyond so this exaggerated kind of dirty, hairy thing that they're doing. Well, um, and all the yeah. homeless people are time travelers. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so there's like, there's a lot going on there that I think borrows from um, sort of familiar traditions and 
I, yeah, I don't know. That, 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 that was the stuff that I found myself most invested in, I guess. I mean, that's, that's interesting. I think that the, uh, the scene in the dilapidated opera house is one of the scenes when, when he kills the, the people who are attacking him and Dr. Reilly is one of the scenes that I think could be completely lost in the movie and the movie would lose nothing from having. And, and, and it is the scene that when I, when I most recently watched it, uh, to borrow what you were saying, Connor, I was like, this is, this is some reactionary shit. Like, you know, <laughs> like two, uh, don't really know even how to characterize it Two two, uh, black gangsters 90s black gangsters coming to try and like attack them you know it, it, it not great not not a great uh scene there um but yeah i i think that the you know what you're talking about the urban spaces you know like the way that they interpret philadelphia is absolutely uh just filthy disgusting uh it's almost like when you're watching it and I, I wonder how much of this was like Gilliam's intention and how much of it was not like there's like this, it, it it's almost like you're expected to watch and be like, well, you know, I mean, this is kind of what happens, you know, like when, when you just let things, you know, go to hell in the way, you know, and, and it, Gilliam doesn't give you a lot of reasons to, really be pulling for this world to survive i guess is a better way to yeah yeah absolutely absolutely. and and uh and i agree that that's reactionary uh you know i i wonder i mean he you know he he said some things recently that 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 are pretty reactionary so i wonder you know how much of that was always present and how much of it you know i just kind of ignored or or you know probably didn't really know about um but yeah i think those are this uh, and the idea of the kind of do nothing eco anarchists i mean he's definitely making a critique there uh although you know the one the one thing that i think is interesting is that there is this kind of menacing dread to the eco anarchists in this movie there is this kind of feeling as you're watching it that that uh, they're going to unleash something that they don't understand, and that uh, the the consequences are going to be absolutely dire, and that they are the bad guys. And then by the end of it, you kind of find that they're kind of harmless, and that it's actually somebody with incredibly reactionary ideas who is responsible for the the plague and that I think is just really an interesting kind of, you know, sleight of hand that Gilliam does in this movie to, to be showing you the entire time what's going on, but showing you it in a way that you just completely miss it because you're paying attention to everything else he's throwing at you. Yeah. I think that's well said. And I think that to be fair, um, while I think the depiction of urban spaces is very of its moment and sort of purely reactionary, but again, reactionary in a way that is just immersed in the norms of the narrative arts in the in the 90s and the prior few decades at least. Um, I think that the depiction of the lifestyle zany 
you know, animal rights eco-anarchists is actually, as you said, one of the more, one of the intentionally surprising inverting things about this and that ultimately their worldview where they just want to liberate animals and, you know, and have a world that is more valorizing of life forms other than the human. I think that the movie ultimately celebrates that in its way. Um, sort of from the, from top to bottom, like the movie is very, is, is pro animal, I would say. And like, there's a sense when, uh, when James Cole first goes to the surface and encounters like grizzly bears and lions in the wreckage of the city that like, that might be kind of okay. At least, you know, that, that like the, the animals ruling the surface of the earth is not the worst thing. Bears only do that when they're very upset. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, right. I mean, it, yeah. it, it, it does seem clear that, uh, yeah, I mean, Gilliam is certainly not saying that it's 100% bad that humans are gone. Right. You know, I mean, yeah, I think that's a good point. And the, the question is just, uh, sorry, let me cut you off. No, no I w- the point I was making was not an interesting one. Go ahead. I mean, I, I think that like, it, it, yeah, the, the the reactionary elements of this are less reaction against anything that's sort of pro-ecological or pro-animal or whatever, and more the, like, precisely what you said earlier, which is, like, does humanity deserve to survive? And the film often suggests no, because we suck and left our own devices, we turn our cities into, you know, shitholes full of muggings, which is, again, it's, like, very, it's, like, a 90s comic book, you know, Frank Miller type shit. And, like, I want to ask you guys, I didn't catch this. And we're going to go into some spoilers, spoilers. So if you don't want this plot spoiled, turn this off right now. We've already made it over half an hour. But um, <laughs> please help me out here. The guy who, the guy from the lab, the red-haired guy who unleashes the plague. I One thing I missed entirely, do, what are his ideological beliefs? What is his motivation for doing right. that? Right. So the first time that we meet him, we don't, we don't know that he works in the lab. He actually, see, it, he almost seems like kind of like a, so again, this is just a really interesting thing, I think, that... He's that, like a reply guy on Twitter at first. Right, yeah. Like, it's so <laughs> interesting the way he does this. So, so, so we, you know, we encounter Dr. Rayleigh again, giving a lecture about the end of the world and people talking, like, people coming being soothsayers. So, and, and what she's talking about, as, as we at this point know, is all of these people that they've sent back in time who have become stuck in time or, or have gone to different uh, eras, right? She's talking about people in the Middle Ages and like these people appearing from nowhere, speaking in strange languages, warning of a plague. Um, and it's almost like so when you're watching it, you're so invested in this. You think that this part is so interesting and, and it's, it's like doing this world building and you also know that Cole is somewhere around and, you know, it, and that they're going to meet again. And then there's this kind of just weird aside where um, the hold on one second, I just want to make sure that I get his name because he's he does such an incredible David Morris, um, mm-hmm. who plays uh, Doctor Peters, comes up to her and he does this yeah he does this kind of weird like reply guy thing where he's like you know I really love your book and I think that you're completely right and she's like yeah okay weirdo like whatever just sign the book and like he's he's very strange and very intense and he says something to the effect of like. You know, I think that you're right. I think the humans are like a plague and a pestilence. And, and she's like, that, what? That's not what I'm saying. Okay, whatever. <laughs> you know, sign the book. Like, ah. um, And then, of course, you know, it goes outside and then Cole is there and then you kind of forget about him. Um, but that, I think that shows, I think, his, uh, 
his ideology. His ideology is that you know uh, humans are the virus and the parasite and need to be erased from the world in order to save the planet. And yeah. and, and 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 so. And I, and then I think, th- and that's basically it. Like that's that's the only indication you get of his ideology. And I think that that is actually all that you need, because then, you then you just kind of are watching the rest of the movie go forward, and you're watching him in Goan's dad's lab, uh, you know, handling all of these viruses, and and then of course at the end you get you know you get a little bit more information about what he's doing, and when he when he opens the uh, the canister. Oh, by the way, sorry. Slight digression, but here's the thing. Even if you believe, now that we're in spoilers territory, I'm going to say this. Even <laughs> if you believe at the end that the woman scientist that went back in time to stop, to, to stop Dr. Peters was successful on the plane, stopping him from spreading the disease around the world, he already opened the canister in Philadelphia. This stuff is already out. It does not matter. Right. Right. But, well, but anyway, that, so that's, yeah, that's my interpretation of his. I mean, uh, Pete, I, I don't know if you have... Uh, maybe a different interpretation of it, but that was, that was my, I, we are 90% aligned, but you know, that 10% is where people get screeching at each other. That's how these things work. Uh, I'd say that, yeah, I agree with you that she did not prevent the spread of the plague, but like cold said, there's nothing we can do with your people. You're already dead. I think she was on that plane just to get a sample of the virus so that they could get, have an original sample to develop a vaccine in the future. And she was never there to save humanity at all, at least the humanity of the past. But yeah, that makes sense. Hmm. But. But well, then why, I, mean, I don't. Yeah. But then wouldn't if if that's what she was there to do, mm-hmm. then wouldn't she? I mean, are they even able to take things back in time? I can't remember. Are they are they able to carry things back and forth? Yes. Yes. Uh, for example, like she was clothed. Um, I don't, I know there are some limitations because like Cole had to eat the spider to try and get it back. Mm -hmm. So it might be that bringing the virus back was infecting herself with that version. Yeah. I mean, I just, I guess I just wonder like if, if that is what she was doing, then why wouldn't she then just bring back the, the vaccine? Oh, to the, to the past? Yeah. Honest, honestly, I think this is like a Greek play. There's inevitability here. Right, like, right. So, so, so sorry sorry to interrupt, but, but this oh, is what no, I want to no. say. So I, like I said in chat earlier, I have two interpretations of the ending, right? Sure. So the first one is that, um, that she comes back and she can't change anything, which is what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Second one is that actually she never came back and that's just her in the past. Oh, and and Cole is a nut. Absolutely, that's a great no, interpretation. No, no. Cole is correct. Cole, like Cole is correct that it is it is time travel. Okay. He he was sent back by a bunch of scientists, including Doctor Jones. But Doctor Jones on the plane is the Doctor Jones from the future twenty years earlier. Oh, I see. Okay, so so like her presence there is nothing about time travel at all. It's possible. I, I see the argument, and it makes for a fun vision of the movie. Uh, but she also like she says she's in insurance, mm-hmm. and that I interpreted as she is an insurance policy for humanity. 
I mean, I think, I think, I think you're, you're a hundred percent right. It's just that that's just an interpretation that I find interesting, uh, because, you know, going back to what I was saying, because of how bleak and hopeless it is. That's why yeah. I find that very interesting that there was just, and, and, and it's interesting too, that like, so now she can go back in time, but like before, like she couldn't because only some people could, only some people were like, I, I don't know. I mean, the whole thing is, is very, if you start picking apart the movie, the, the internal logic of the movie, um, that last scene doesn't make a lot of sense. Can I, can I just say I'm really proud of you guys for spending several minutes deep into a recording of our science fiction podcast arguing about the time travel mechanics. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for doing that. I'm sure some of our listeners appreciated it. <laughs> okay, that, yeah, that's not unfair. Uh, so uh, uh, there's, a, there's a couple of directions we can go. One is everybody can dogpile on me because in some ways I like the opera scene. Um, another direction is we could talk a little more about the aesthetics of, of, of Terry Gilliam, which I knew that was something you wanted to talk about, Connor. Where are you guys at? I mean, personally, I, I've said all I have to say about Gilliam. I just don't. His way of thinking through power and humanity is just not one that really interests me. I, I, I kind of want to hear about what you think about the opera scene. I also want to jump in here before we abandon that thread about the spread of the virus and say that, like, Based on what Owen said a few minutes ago, um, the doctor, the red-haired doctor who releases the virus, I mean, he's a he's a Unabomber archetype, right? He's a very smart loner, yeah. mis- misanthrope, who believes that industrialized society should be destroyed. And at mid-90s, I mean, that was when Kaczynski was sending bombs to everybody. So there you he's, go. He's Derek Jensen. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, um, so so the opera scene was a horrible scene. It's it's a, it's impossible to argue about that. And I would have felt it would have been a much more comfortable movie had that not been in. And there is sort of a look look at how bad minorities and poor people vibe to that whole scene that I'm never going to be comfortable with. Uh, but one thing that happened there that was very good for me was. Uh, the the Cole character, that's where he fought. And the like what it's it's very rare to see good physical acting, and it's extremely rare to see it in A-list Hollywood celebrities. And we saw it here. He fought like a six-year-old would. And that is that's one of the moments in the film that I am never going to let go. I just thought it was extraordinary to watch Bruce Willis punch people like a six year old would. And and that's what made him so dangerous, because like I remember fighting like a kid. If I fought now, I'd never want to actually injure somebody. And that never even crossed my mind when I was getting on the yellow bus to school. Right. And so it just it just made for an interesting and unique character. And that was really the only moment for me where that was really drawn out. I mean, yeah, you're talking about like when he's just like pounding the guy's head into the ground, like over and over and over again. Oh yeah, and when he when he was punching, he was sh- punching for a point like six feet beyond the guy's head. Like every punch had every single ounce of energy that he had, and nobody does like that. You'd be a murderer. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it's it's definitely it is definitely the moment in the movie when you. It's one of two moments in the movie where you understand how dangerous he is. The first moment is when he's 
completely drugged up in the uh, mental hospital. And they basically say that like they needed like eight people to hold him down. And even then he pretty much kicked all of their asses. Yes. That's a good point. But a lot of that was verbal. Like, I, no, I would yeah, have loved they don't to, show that. Yeah. I'd have loved to see him, you know, kick, kick ass on like 12 cops all about it. You know, I feel like, I feel like we should, um, maybe, maybe, maybe an interesting thing to talk about. I mean, although we could talk more about the opera scene, actually. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt oh, there. No, no, that, that was perfect. We, we got through the opera scene without you guys canceling me. That's all <laughs> I ask. <laughs> is, <laughs> never. Uh, is, is like, you know, we kind of mentioned this earlier, but I was just wondering, like, about just talking more. We've talked a lot about Bruce Willis and, and, and his performance, but, like, Brad Pitt and his character and Madeline Stone, her character, which I think are, like, I, I was I was really struck when I watched this most recently um, by just how how good Madeline Stone's performance is to have to, like, play three characters basically one a character in authority who is trying to keep the main character down two um a victim of the main character who is trying to survive and and still and also you know still having the, the role of the doubter and then three and i think this is like this is just where where her performance really is so good is she then he comes back and and is now convinced that he is insane and that this is not happening. And mm-hmm. she is now the one who has to convince him that it's happening. And that's just such an, an interesting and I think probably really difficult thing to do. And she, she nails it. She just totally nails it. And uh, anyway, I guess this, that's my Madeline Stowe thing. I think, this, I think she just does such a good job, especially kind of taking the viewer on that journey with her and making the entire thing believable. Yeah. No, I, I, I think, I think you're absolutely right. I, um, oh gosh, what was, oh, okay. There is something I've been meaning to ask you guys about this film because like I'm a, I'm a Philistine. So I've never actually seen Vertigo. Okay. And it's very obvious that the, the, the plot and themes of Vertigo is supposed to play, uh, is, is supposed to, put a great deal of shadow on this film because they clip vertigo throughout. There's references to it. They actually act out one scene more or less. Have, have you guys seen vertigo and does it add something to this? I have not. <laughs> okay. I have, it's been a really, really long time, but the thing that I, I think the, the, the theme that is similar is that if I cor- recall correctly, uh, the main character believes he sees a woman fall to her death and it turns out that she has not. And then at the end of the movie, she does die in exactly the way that he thought that she did in front of him. Huh? So it's kind of, I think that is probably the thing that that Gillian's getting at is this idea that you saw somebody die and then you spend the rest of the movie with that person. And then you do see her die in the same way. Even though, even though you didn't see her die that way in the first place, which is a little, a little bit different, but it is kind of like the same. I yeah, at least there's there's a clear tie. I guess my homework assignment for today is to go watch that movie. It's really good. It's like it's, I mean, it's a classic for a reason. It, it's it's just a really, really uh, you know, well done Hitchcock um, movie. And, and and what I do remember about it is that it, it has that. Uh, 
you know, I, I, I think 12 Monkeys does this as well, which is, you know, you, you have a movie that's around like two hours um, and, it, and it, feels, it feels almost like operatic or like, like a novel. As as you're because so many different things happen and you're and you follow this story that has like a clear three act structure and uh, it, it is you know there's just a lot going on um, you know some movies uh, I don't want to pick on Marvel movies but I would definitely say that they're like this but oh think, you can do that here that's probably that's probably not like the right that's probably not the right thing to say I, I think that's maybe a little unfair but maybe. There are a lot of films that, you know, uh, will be like two hours, especially in like the science fiction thriller genre, where, uh, you know, it, it's somewhat self-contained story, which doesn't have like this kind of epic scope. And a lot of epic movies will, will be a lot longer. Uh, but these both are able to like pack in like a very, very large overarching storyline with a lot of development and and, and a lot of things going on within a two hour act structure. And especially, sorry, I'm just going off here, but like, and especially in a, you know, media environment like we're in now where, you know, most people's entertainment at this point are like, you know, 10 episode long, 10 episode hour long shows that we kind of binge are kind of like watching like 10 hour movies. It's just interesting to see somebody do it in two hours. Um, and, one other thing is that talking about pandemics and and art and and uh, you know movies about pandemics and the pandemic that we're going through right now, I would recommend if you guys have not watched it, Counterpart, uh, which is J.K. Simmons. It's a it's it, two season uh, canceled now show on Stars that involves um, two parallel worlds and a pandemic is also a big part of that. And I started watching that like a week or two ago. Uh, you know, right as the coronavirus stuff really started to accelerate and uh, it, it has not been helping my freak out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough, man. I, I feel like we've gotten a, a good amount of interesting material on this one. I, I want to say to Owen in particular, if there's other things you want to add about this, please do. But also, you know, as we as we move towards an ending here, I want to make sure that you have a chance to explain what your current work is and plug anything that you're working on, anything coming up. So, I mean, those are my two questions for you, Owen, in particular. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess the, the last thing that I would say is that uh, just to kind of go back to what I was saying earlier is also, you know, this is just such a good performance by Brad Pitt who, uh, you know, as I think Pete alluded to earlier, it, you know, plays this kind of manic, uh, almost cartoonishly anarchic character. Uh, But I think that the reason that he does such a great job with it is that this character could have easily been very two-dimensional, but Pitt manages to make you sympathize with him in a lot of ways. And he, he has, there are just a couple moments, but he, he really sells them so well when kind of his, you know, clear insecurity and there's this kind of like sadness underneath his behavior. And I think that, you know, the way that Pitt sells that as well as, you know, and makes it so this like cartoonish character that he's playing is just, is, is, I think is more believable, uh, 
by having done that. And, and I just think that, again, like I, I know we've talked about this at, at length through the hour here, but really the performances of the three leads have just been, are, are in this movie, are just so good. And, and I, I just, I can't say it enough. I think that, I think they're just really, really great. Cool. I agree with yeah. that. Yeah. I don't know if I'm, hopefully I'm not cutting Pete off from any further insights. No, no, my insight, insight well ran out about uh, 25 minutes ago, so. <laughs> cool. So, I mean, Owen, tell us, uh, as I obviously did not introduce you properly in this episode, tell us, tell us about what you're working on and uh, where we can find said work and all of that. Yeah, uh, I am senior editor and staff writer at Common Dreams. That's commondreams.org. Uh, we're a news digest, news outlet uh, for progressives. Um, you know, we cover, we basically cover the world. So we, we put out a lot of content, um, just kind of taking all of these news items that are happening in our, in our world, uh, and kind of breaking them down for people with a progressive outlook. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, we, we cover a lot of stuff. We cover the election, we cover war, climate, uh, and, and, and we do it all with a progressive focus and, and using, uh, you know, what progressives and progressive groups and with a left uh, perspective. So if you are looking for, you know, a daily news digest where you can kind of go to a website and, and see, uh, you know, 10, 15 plus articles and five to 10 opinion pieces a day, uh, that's us. We, we provide that coverage for you, so uh, I, I would recommend it. And would also say that we are a nonprofit, so if you have canceled your New York Times subscription because you read a Brett Stevens column and you want to <laughs> give that money to somebody else, we'll definitely take it. So, Cool. All right. Yep. Check out Common Dreams, everyone. Check out Owen's work. You can find him on Twitter. Um, and I'm sure that at some point you can find him back on this podcast. Yeah, definitely. Cool, man. Well, thanks a lot. And uh, thank all of you. Go watch 12 Monkeys. Thanks, everyone.